23 in the third section. Right. And yeah, Chip, fine print. I believe we both got uh, snookered by some fine print on uh, internet. Uh, Facebook. Facebook purchase, remember? For King Sandals. I got a, a skirt. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. You, you, what, did you King, what did you order? What did you? I was Keen sandals, I think, for one of our kids. Yeah. And then it came. I got a Chinese it's skirt. True. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, because it was like it was in like yen or something like that. Yeah. It was in Chinese currency, which should have been a sign. Yeah. This wasn't legit. And I think you did a similar thing. You. Did yeah, exactly. And what was it that we had ordered? Coat. We had ordered a coat. And same thing. Was it a Chinese scarf? Yeah, there's some Chinese scarf peddler who's <laughs> manipulating <laughs> the internet. Scarf. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah right, scarf. exactly. Did I see another hand over here? No? Fine print? Okay. Uh, so this is a way of thinking about in these last couple of chapters, uh, the Lord is not being sneaky or underhanded by any means. Uh, but it, as we get to the end of Leviticus, he wants to make plain what the consequences are, both positive and negative, for their obedience or their disobedience, as the case may be. So go ahead and open up to Leviticus chapter 26. <clears throat> now, um, uh, for, the, for the sake of time, we've got two whole chapters here. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to give you um, just a little glimpse of this uh, first chapter here, of chapter 26. So the Lord says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. All right. Now here, starting in verse 3, some blessings, some fine print, if you will, for if they follow. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I'll give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. Then down to verse 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Okay, here's this beautiful picture. God is saying, if you walk in my ways, if you listen to my voice, if you follow my commandments, all will be well with the world. And even more than that, this, this statement in verse 12 is profound. He says, I will walk among you and will be your God. The word that is used there, the Hebrew word that is used, is the same word that shows up back in Genesis when it speaks of God walking among Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember that? Living in that kind of, of close, intimate fellowship and communion with his people. What God is saying is that on the far side of this covenant promise, that if you keep my covenant, if you walk in my ways, it's going to be like a return to Eden. Once again, I will be with you as my people. This has been God's longing from the, the beginning of creation, to live in that sort of relationship with his people. When they take the fruit, when they break faith to him, his word to them is not, what have you done, but where are you? Where are you? Because that's what he, what he wants more than anything, is to be with his people. 
Leviticus 26.12 is an important touchstone along the way of the story as we see that reiterated again and again and again. God wants to be with us. And in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, and whom they called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Jesus, when he rises from the dead, ascends to the, the Father, he sends his Holy Spirit that he might live with us, dwell within us, until finally, at the last day, when he comes again, keep your finger in Leviticus and turn to the back of your Bibles, to the very end in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, John's vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So that finally, at the end of days, the coming of Christ and the new creation, we have a fulfillment of that promise and that hope that God had set into our hearts at the very beginning, that he would live and dwell among us. And in his presence, it says in Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the, the hope that we have and it's a hope that's there in Leviticus. This is simply, God is just reiterating what was already there. It's a beautiful, powerful picture of his purpose for his people. But then, there's a but. Okay? In verse 14, back in Leviticus 26. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments... If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain and your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Going on down to verse 25. I'll bring a sword upon you. You shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Verse 33, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Okay, so things don't look as good if they are disobedient. And so we see how Israel's blessing, number one on your handout, hangs on a condition. That little troublesome word, if. If, if, if. If only you obey, things will go well with you. And this is the logic of the law. This is the logic of God's law, that it is, it's founded on this condition, that if you obey, things go well. If you don't, 
then things don't. And it comes up again and again in the Old Testament. To give just a, a few examples, earlier, when he first gave the, the covenant with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, God said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if you indeed obey. Again in Deuteronomy chapter 28, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Once more, Psalm 132. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. If, 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 if. Over the whole of the Old Testament, this condition, this if, hangs over the people of God like a guillotine, just waiting to drop. But what happens, and the, the wonder of this week, is that that guillotine falls, but it falls on Christ. See, It's not that God just wipes away that condition and says, oh, this, this doesn't matter. And indeed, we see throughout the Old Testament that they uh, experience the consequences of their sin over and over again, most fully in exile and everything that comes with the exile. But the deepest, darkest consequences of that sin are ultimately dropped on Jesus himself. See, He's the one who undergoes and experiences the consequences of that failed condition for us. But this is how the Old Testament then contrasts with the New Testament, with the, the coming of the gospel. We have in that the Old Testament, or perhaps I should say with the giving of the law. Have that there? So if the law starts with those conditions moving to the gospel of convictions. See? That you instead of living in the, the world of if, 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 now we live in the world of therefore, therefore, therefore. See? Because of what Christ has done, now we are living in that reality not with that condition hanging over us anymore, but instead on the bedrock of Christ's finished work for us. See? This is the dynamic of, of law and gospel. And it doesn't mean that the law is abrogated or set aside by the gospel. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. See? So now he is the fulfillment of that law. And as Christians, as believers, we seek to strive to walk in God's ways, even as, as he had commanded to the Israelites of old. We seek to follow him but now no longer with that guillotine hanging over us because we know it has fallen on Christ. All right, I just said a lot there. So questions or clarifications, comments on that, on, on the law and, and kind of how this dynamic works. Yeah. I find it interesting at the very beginning, the, you know, it talks about not setting up sacred stones, and uh -huh. that, yep. which is what Jacob used to do. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, but the big difference being, well, and Jacob was not the the most pious of guys all the time, right? But it's, uh, where, who are you setting this up to? I mean, it was that, that paganism, or maybe better put, a syncretism, which is, you know, the $5 word that describes when you mix together two religions, right? So, for instance, in, in Haiti, where I've, I've taken some trips, you would see how there would be the, the local pagan and voodoo religion mixed with images, like Christian imagery, right? 
that was a continual problem. And yeah, it predated uh, even the, the Israelites here. So, yeah, Chip. It seems like that um, as Christians that we often forget the convictions part. You know, or at least throughout uh, the Christian faith, you hear they say, they, they say, look what happens when you don't follow Jesus. Sure. Look, look, look what happens. It's going to look like this. And it's a way to, and it's true, right? It's not not true, right? And so look at, you, you can use this to condemn the world. Look at, you know, it's going to set a plague upon the uh, cities. Well, you know, whatever, you can do that. And so there seems that there's always a tension between these conditions and convictions, mm -hmm. you know, and what does it mean for us to, because obviously in the, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, you know, Jesus does take the, the hit for us, yeah. but there's still this, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Right. Yeah, uh, no, that's right. And I think the ten tension is the right word for it, that we do, we live in that tension, but now we dwell in the convictions rather than dwelling in, in the conditions. So we still need to hear that word of, of if then, recognizing that for one thing, there's just a natural law side to it. So um, Paul himself will even say this in, in Galatians, you know, there's a, um, a worldly sense in which we can talk about how you will reap what you sow, right? That if, you know, just to give a, a trivial example, if you don't get any sleep or you're just sleeping three, four hours a night, eventually you're just going to feel very groggy, unable to, to go about your business. That's not God smiting you for not getting enough sleep. That's a, that's a natural kind of consequence to living outside of how God has, has made you. And so we want to keep that in mind, but also keep before us um, a proper fear of God, not a... Um, uh, sometimes called a servile, servile fear, like, okay, just waiting to get slugged, but a filial fear, that is a fear of him as our father, wanting to, to honor him um, and seeking to, to honor him and to make our papa proud, if I can put it that way. Not because we're worried that he's not going to love us or accept us if we don't, uh, but because we are loved and accepted, we want to honor him in all that we do. So, yeah, whether or not, I mean, it's, it's, I think there's an, a natural tendency to lapse back just into, to live into the law because it's easier to understand, whereas the gospel just comes out of the clear blue sky. And it's, let me just point you to one passage, which to me, I just, this is where Paul just starts cooking. And I think I put it on, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, where he wants to convey, I don't know that if he had, Leviticus 26 in mind, especially when he was writing this. But I think of this just like that Leviticus 26 section of here's all the blessings that will befall you if you obey and, and follow me. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, here's all the blessings that befall you because Christ already has kept that. So um, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, I may have mentioned this before, but in the Greek, it's one long run-on sentence, okay? It's not separate sentences. It's just one long run-on sentence. So let me read it in that, in that spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, was who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's a conviction, y'all. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan 
plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Can I get an amen? amen. amen. It's just this cascading <clears throat> waterfall of mercy, of his blessings pouring over us. Uh, it says in Psalm 42, deep calls to deep from the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and your breakers have washed over me. That's, where, that's the reality in which we live in, which we live and move and have our being. The law still has a word for us, but grace and God's mercy is the, the, the reality in which we, we are bathe ourselves in, if you will. All right, go ahead, Sal. Yeah. Um, I, sometimes I, I can't figure this out exactly, but well, hearing that what you were reading it uh -huh. falls on the individual but it seems like in the Old Testament, it was kind of a collective. Hmm. Yeah, right. On the Il Israelites. Yeah. So if there's one good guy in the group, he's right. going to suffer for everybody else. Yeah, okay, this is, a, this is a great point. So Sally's pointing out that with the, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, it seems like it's more of this collective, right? If you got one bad, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. And we, we see this uh, lived out. The one that comes to mind is the sin of Achan in uh, uh, Joshua chapter 7, I think it is, where this one guy, they have to figure out who's the guy who did this wrong thing so this plague stops upon us. Um, whereas in the New Testament, it seems like there's more of a focus on the individual, Sally says. So one way to think about this, and theologians will put it this way, is that Jesus is Israel, the people of Israel, reduced to one. Okay? So you picture it like a funnel. So in the Old Testament, you have this funnel, this collective of all the Israelites. But now all of that has now been summed up and, and filled in him. And in fact, Paul even uses um, this word um, in Ephesians 1 where he says that um, in him is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, to recapitulate all things in him under one head. So that now, in and through Christ, there's been that, that kind of funneling. Now it goes back out, and there is, um, in the New Testament, a, a renewed appreciation and understanding for, for the individual and how this applies to each and every one of us. So, yeah, that's a really uh, astute observation, and I think that it's, that it's accurate. There's still that, that collective and corporate sense of, in the body of Christ and in the church, but in terms of that relationship with God, it, I would say it's even more personal than it than it had been, yeah. And, um, we now have the power of the Holy Spirit. Correct, yes. Help, yes. But I don't know how things worked out for Israelites. Yeah, no, the, so the power of the Holy Spirit, too. Your every Tom, Dick, and Jane Israelite did not have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was only given to the kings, to the prophets, in special circumstances, uh, whereas now it's poured out on all the people of God. Yep, that's right. Yeah, ma'am. Um, it, it occurs to me too that the Old Testament focused on certain like victory and battle here in the earthly setting, yeah. and uh, you know growth of crops or wealth or things in an earthly sense was still kind of part of the promise. Yes. Right? Yep. That's right. Whereas in the New Testament, 
you know, this place is kind of a write-off. <laughs> it's the insurance adjuster talking here, yes. Yeah, yeah. well, so um, that's good. So, you, and you saw it, Paul said, maybe you picked up on this, he said, every spiritual blessing is given to us in Christ. And so um, there isn't that promise anymore um, of here's all the, the temporal blessing, this worldly blessings. Uh, in fact, as Jesus puts it, it very well may be just the opposite. You're going to get your house taken from you. Uh, your, your crops might be torched. You, you're going to be killed. Um, but in, in, in spite of all of that, you have received every spiritual blessing in me. And so that now I would say, it's not that those things that it talks about in Leviticus 26 are unimportant, but now they've been shifted further forward to that vision of Revelation 21 and to the new creation. Where now, I think um, Leviticus 26, we want to read that in conjunction with that new creation, where then I think that helps to fill out a picture of what will that be like. Oh, that's going to be like a place where, you know, the, uh, like it says in, also in Revelation, the leaves of the trees will be for the healing of the nations. It's a very physical image, uh, but that's only going to be realized in the, the, the new creation. So, yeah, good man. Thanks. Can you talk about... Um the difference between blessings and curses in the, all the New Testament. Like a verse that caught my attention was, "I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase." Yeah. And we're seeing more and more like creation just falling more and more. Convulsing. And I mean, we know that that's because of original sin, but like, mm-hmm. are we to read the? continued bad things that happen as God's wrath, or right. how do we, how do we, do we, do we read in that way at all? Yeah, okay, that's a, that's a really good question. Okay, so Anne's asking, uh, moving right along here. Uh, is God cursing us? Go. Is God cursing us? Go. Here's how, here's how I think about it. I think, um, well, first let me put it this way. Where I think we go astray is when, uh, this, I, I don't want to impugn all televangelists, but I'll just call it the, the kind of televangelist tag, which is something bad happens, and they, then they connect you know, dot to dot and say, as you know, notoriously was said after Hurricane Katrina, oh, well, New Orleans got took out because you've been to New Orleans. Like, that's pretty obvious why New Orleans got took out. Like, this is you know, a den of robbers. This is a decadent, depraved place. This is God's particular judgment on, on them. Uh, I think that that's inappropriate, and it gives short shrift to the reality that we all live in, in sinful places, right? Um, and that, that sin is, is in us as well. But to the question of, um, as there, this continual convulsing of creation, kind of the, the unfolding of the wrath of God, I think, I think that is kind of what's happening. In fact, I think that's a better way to understand what is happening in the world, because just, um, I don't want to go too far afield here, but um, to Romans chapter 1, um, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, this was kind of the key verse for Luther as he was understanding the gospel. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then the next verse, verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Um, that present tense, that ongoing tense, is really interesting. And I, I think what Paul is kind of conveying is the, that God's wrath is, is still it's being realized in the present. 
but that Christ has assumed on himself that eternal wrath. So that while we still deal with the consequences of sin as it's unfolding in this present age, in the age to come, it is totally wiped out for us who, who believe in him. So um, that wrath of God is, is there. We're all dealing with it. But we know that ultimately the wrath has, has fallen on Christ, so we don't have that uh, future fear of it. So I don't know if that fully answers it, And I mean, I don't have a, a perfect answer for it, but I think, um, yeah, I think that's one way of thinking about what's, what's still going on here. The world that lives in revolt against God's rule, and so it can't help but suffer the effects and consequences of that rebellion. Yeah. All right. Let's go, let's go on to, to uh, Leviticus here. And again, just kind of wrapping up and tying some bow on here on things. So we saw as the, about the, the conditional blessings, but then also the disobedience of verses 14 and 45. Disobedience brings bad deliverance. Uh, I think that it's uh, an ironic use of the, the word here in, in verse 25. Um, so often in the scriptures when it talks about deliverance, it's a positive thing. But God says, if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered, yay, into the hand of the enemy. Boo. <laughs> um, so they're going to endure a deliverance, but it's going to be a negative one. And uh, on your, your handout, I put just a, a little table from John Kleinig in his commentary. It's not showing up here for some reason. But um, you have it on your, your handout, the degrees of resistance and the punishment. So... If you will not listen to me, I'll do this to you. If you still not listen to me, I'll discipline you seven times for your sins. If you walk contrary to me, it's going even further now, and you're unwilling to listen, I will go on to strike you seven times. If you will not be disciplined by me, but walk contrary to me, you're not even going to um, deal with discipline, then I will walk contrary to you. Now God's against you, and I'll strike you seven times. And then if you still will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you in anger and discipline you seven times for your sins. Whew. It's this escalation of the judgment and the consequences. And isn't it interesting that God uses that language of walk, which was there in the first section of Leviticus 26. His goal, his desire is to walk peaceably among his people in that, in that shalom kind of relationship. But if they won't listen to him, if, to the contrary, they walk contrary to him, then he will not walk among them in shalom, but instead in judgment. Uh, it's a very vivid and, and pointed picture of, of that judgment. But ultimately, what, um, what our Lord does, what he experiences, to use that kind of catchphrase of deliver, uh, this is how his death and his resurrection are also spoken. In Luke 24, our Easter gospel next week. It says, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Uh, the Son of Man must be delivered. He endures that deliverance, that negative deliverance into the hands of the enemy for us. Quick aside, just because I saw it, and we're talking about John Kleinig. Once I heard John Kleinig speak, and he, he recounted how he went to this Lutheran church, which picked the wrong thing for their stained glass window. On their stained glass window, it, um, it, said, it, it said in the words on the stained glass window, 
why do you seek the living among the dead, right? And so he brought some visitors with him to the church, and the visitors looked up at that stained glass window, and they said, now I see what you're telling me about this church. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Uh, so just be careful what you, know, what, what you put there. Anyway, all right. Romans 4 also. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So once again, he endures that deliverance into the hands of the enemy for us so that we might be delivered from it and instead back into the hands of God for our salvation. Okay, that's Leviticus 26 in a nutshell. Could do a lot more with that, but we're just uh, kind of summing it up. Although I did, I did want to draw attention to this at the end of the chapter. Starting with verse 40, there's one more conditional. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. There is this door propped open still for the possibility of a reconciliation. And going down there, verse 45, I will for their sake Remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The promise still remains. And I can imagine if the Israelites, and you just heard all of these curses that are coming, if you're unfaithful, it probably was hard for them to hear that last word. But still, that promise is there, that glimmer of hope and light, the Lord saying, I will keep my promise. I am true to my word. That ultimately is the, the hope that we have. Yeah. It almost brings me to tears when I read these minor prophets. When they send, he sends these prophets, and please turn from. I almost cry for God because he said, "Please, please, please turn from your evil way, so I can bless yes. you." Yes. And time and time again, he's right. pleading with the people to turn. That's right. They don't, and and they turn their back on him. They turn their back on him again and again. God's heart is broken. He's not delighting in you know, uh, despising his people and smiting them. But to the contrary, why won't you listen to me? Again and again in, in Deuteronomy, he says, oh, that my people would walk in my ways always. He doesn't want to, he, he doesn't want to bring that, that just judgment. Uh, Even Jesus you know, wept yeah, over Jerusalem. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Jerusalem. Yep, exactly right. That's exactly right. Chapter 27, in one sentence or less. <laughs> so chap chapter 27 is almost this kind of anticlimax. Um, it gets into some things um, about vows. It talks about um, the devoted things and tithes. Um, mundane sorts of matters. And we don't have, have the time to, to get into to all of it, unfortunately. But suffice it to say, all the holiness of Leviticus, it culminates in these, these mundane matters. And yeah, it brought to my mind in uh, the Christmas story. Beautiful Christmas story, this powerful, the proclamation of the angels, and the angels come to the shepherds, and the shepherds get to go and see the birth of the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And then, do you recall, what do they do after they go and see the baby Jesus? They head to the tavern. They, oh. <laughs> it says... 
They went back to their work. They went back to their work. They're like, whew, this was awesome. All right, back to the sheep. And uh, in, in one of his, his Christmas sermons, Martin Luther, in his Martin Luther way, comments on this, on the fact that the, they, they go back to their shepherding. Uh, Luther says, this is wrong. We should correct this passage to read, they went and shaved their heads, fasted, told their rosaries, and put on cowls. Instead, we read, the shepherds returned. Where to? To their sheep. Oh, that can't be right. Did they not leave everything and follow Christ? Mustn't one forsake father and mother, wife and child to be saved? But the scripture says plainly that they returned and did exactly the same work as before. They did not despise their service, but took it up again where they left off with all fidelity. And I tell you that no bishop on earth ever had so fine a crook as those shepherds. <laughs> we are, just like each week in worship, come and we receive and we have this mountaintop experience receiving the Lord's grace and then we go back to whining kids, difficult customers and dirty houses. We go back to mundane matters because those are the places that God has sent us into to be his bearers of peace and grace. Right? That was the, that's been the pattern from time eternal and still a pattern until the last day when there will be no more dishes Dirty dishes to clean. Can I get an amen? amen. Yes. Um, all right. I wish I, I could go, we'll go more into those chapters, but we're going to leave it at that. I wanted to, to conclude with just some final thoughts, some final takeaways for me. We've, been, we've spent, God bless you guys. What is this, April? We've spent some six or seven months in Leviticus. Everybody, just give yourselves a round of applause. We did it, guys. We did it. Um, proud of you. Uh, and I hope that you have, have been blessed. It's given you some um, new outlook and appreciation for the Old Testament in general and these parts of the scripture that, you know, many people would say, oh, that's flyover country, right? But it's not. There is no flyover country when we're, when we're talking about the Bible. Uh, but let me just give you five of my takeaways from Leviticus. And if you have anything else that you want to share, um, we'd be happy to, to hear about that as well. But let me just let me give you my top five. Once again, in Family Feud style. And the number five. Survey says, thick faith. That's a, my, the number five that I, I have here. Thick faith. What do I mean by that? I mean that we see in Leviticus uh, a Lord who cares about all of our lives. And that it's, it's thick in the sense it's a, it's a robust faith. It's God who he speaks to how do we live our daily lives. He cares about how we, we care for our households. If you've got mildew on the walls, right? He cares about our, our bodies and the care that we give to them. He cares about our animals and on and on it goes. How we, we practice our vocations. Uh, sometimes, as it said, Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? But what we see in Leviticus is a God who cares about not only the heavenly matters, but also the earthly ones and who equips and calls us into those mundane things. And that's why it's a, a thick faith, if you will. Number four, thou shalt party. Um, I, this is especially Leviticus 23, but really throughout the, the, the book, we see God commanding feasts, right? You shall rejoice, right? All these dour Israelites, they needed to be commanded. Hey guys, have some fun, right? 
He gives them the Sabbath so that every week they have an opportunity to rest and to reflect. But then he gives them this whole sacred calendar. He commands them, you're going to take a week off. And then after you know, 50 years, you're going to take a year off. Don't worry, I'm going to provide for you. God desires his people to celebrate. Again, as he says in the, the parable of the prodigal son, it was necessary for us to celebrate and to be glad. That's the heart of our Savior, and that's ultimately what we are driving toward. That's why Easter is the truest day in the whole year, because that is what we are ultimately made for, right? An eternal Easter. That's what we look forward to. So we get a, a foretaste of that also in Leviticus. Third, I say it's not arbitrary. What's the, the it's there? I'm talking about the, the commandments of God. Many times people look at Leviticus and they say, oh, this is just arbitrary. But as we've looked at this, I hope that you have seen that God always has a reason and a rationale for it. There's a, a reason and a rationale in many cases where it couldn't even have been understood by the people at the time why God was, was giving them the instructions that he did. Just one example, last week when we talked about the <laughs> land getting a Sabbath and how that was like actually good farming practice that's been borne out through the ages, but they wouldn't necessarily have known that, but God says, just trust me on this, okay? I want you to, to rotate your crops. I want you to make sure the land gets rest. We've seen that in so many other ways. And then also, and even more so, as Jesus says to the Emmaus walkers on the, the day of his resurrection, all of scripture, the law and the prophets, is fulfilled in me. So that when we have this kind of uh, lens looking at the, the scripture taken up into the, the truth of our Lord Jesus, we see how it all makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense to us, there's something there that's still yet beyond us. Building on that, number two, uh, a Christological. It's all logical. It's all rational. It's reasonable. But it's not the world's logic necessarily. It's a Christologic. It's a logic that ultimately is bound up in Christ. So that if you want to understand even Leviticus, you need to read it through the lens of our Lord Jesus. This was most, maybe most clearly seen through the sacrifices, and through the Day of Atonement. But throughout the book of Leviticus, we read it well, we understand it fully when we look at it through this lens and according to this logic of Christ. And then finally, my number one takeaway, God is not safe, right? Echoing those words from uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the um, Pevensey children are talking to the beavers and they hear for the first time about King Aslan, who is a lion. And I think it's Lucy or, or Susan, one of the girls, she asks, is it Susan? Uh, she asks the, the beaver and, and says, Oh, a lion? A lion. Uh, well, is he quite safe? Right. <laughs> safe? No, of course he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you, but he's good, right? We see in Leviticus a God who is not safe. Just ask Nadab and Abihu, right? He's not safe, but he's good. He's for us. And we see this throughout the scriptures that while a God isn't safe in the way that we typically reckon safe, he is good. He is for us. He has done all things for us in his son Jesus. So, that, thus we have the book of Leviticus. I hope that you have enjoyed it and been blessed by it. And uh, we'll take off next week, and then in two weeks we'll dig into Surprised by Hope. So thank you so much, guys, for being here today and, and throughout the study. And God be with you.